Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 25. We're back at Baker Street to drop in on Holmes and Watson for one of their more peculiar cases. It's The Adventure of the Creeping Man from March 1923. And here's Paul with the introduction. Sherlock Holmes is in a laconic mood and has summoned Dr. Watson peremptorily. Come at once if convenient. If inconvenient, come all the same. He needs Watson's help in the strange case of Professor Presbury, the eminent Camford physiologist. Events surrounding him have so worried his secretary and prospective son-in-law, Trevor Bennett, that he has sought Holmes's advice. Presbury's faithful dog, Roy, has recently conceived a violent antipathy towards his master, who prowls at night. And then there are the mysterious packages from Mr. Dorak of the commercial road, which Bennett is forbidden to open. Somehow it all seems to be connected to the ageing professor's engagement to the young daughter of his colleague, Professor Morphy. The Adventure of the Creeping Man is one of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, the final collection of short stories, which included 12 tales written between 1921 and 1927. And as with every collection post the memoirs, these stories were not produced to a timetable and appeared when Conan Doyle had the inspiration and the desire to write them. So the question has often been, well, what prompted him to write the casebook in the first place? And there seem to be two big reasons uh, that people will often uh, focus on. The first is that by this time, Conan Doyle was very much a leading proponent in spiritualism, and he needed money to fund his spiritualist cause. And in fact, if you think that this, The Creeping Man was probably written in autumn 1922, he'd spent the summer of 1922 uh, on a lecture tour in America on spiritualist matters where he'd had one of his early spats with uh, with Houdini. And it was around this time that he was really sort of wrapping up his uh, literary part of his life, it feels. He, he'd started to sell off some of his manuscripts, and he was working with the publisher John Murray to collect his earlier tales into a series of volumes uh, titled things like Tales of Twilight and The Unseen and Tales of Terror and Mystery. But the other reason that's often cited for him writing the case book is that Sherlock Holmes was experiencing something of a revival at this time. And that was on the back of a series of short films made by the Stoll Picture Company, starring Eileen Norwood as Sherlock Holmes. And um, Conan Doyle was very taken with the films. He was also very taken with Norwood's performance. Um, And some believe that uh, it was Norwood's uh, ability with disguises that inspired Conan Doyle to write the Sherlock Holmes play The Crown Diamond, which he subsequently adapted as The Adventure of the Mazarin Stone, which became the first of the casebook 
And in fact, it was uh, the month before the Mazarin Stone came out that Conan Doyle attended the Stoll Picture Company dinner and gave a speech that was very full of praise about the series and indeed uh, Eileen Norwood himself. Um, of course, as soon as Greenhouse Smith received The Adventure of the Mazarin Stone, he was straight on to Conan Doyle and asking for more short stories. But Conan Doyle was really clear that he could only write if he had good ideas, and he felt that he'd exhausted his own stock, as he put it. Uh, and in fact, he did suggest that the Strand run a competition for ideas, but this was rejected as being impractical. So it really was a, a case of waiting for inspiration to strike, and we'll come on to what that specific inspiration may well have been in a little while. So The Adventure of the Creeping Man was then published in March 1923 in the UK in the Strand magazine and the same month in Hearst International in America with uh, six illustrations by Frederick Dorr Steele which are fantastic illustrations and really capture uh, that sort of dark gothic mood of the of the short story. And there's the tantalising uh, suggestion that The Adventure of the Creeping Man may have been yet another attempt at a last Sherlock Holmes story he'd already tried with The Final Problem and The Second Stain and His Last Bow. Um, but a few months after The Creeping Man was published, he was doing another American lecture tour on spiritualism, and there he gave the strong signal that he'd written his last Sherlock Holmes story. And as Douglas Kerr has pointed out, this is uh, very significant when we come to think about some of the things that Sherlock Holmes says at the end of the story in one of his more philosophical moods. And I mentioned that this has a very gothic feel to it, very reminiscent of some of Conan Doyle's early stories, but it's also often cited as a science fiction story, and there was quite a lot of that fusion of science fiction and horror at this time. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's difficult to work out what the story actually is, really, because the, 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 the explanation for the professor's behaviour, which we'll come on to later, uh, is, is essentially pseudoscientific. But the story itself is structured. Essentially, it's it's a werewolf story. Mm. Uh, it's very traditional, very gothic in its structure and 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 in the tropes that it employs. Uh, you know, creeping shadows in the night, that that kind of thing, and 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 the mystery behind what's going on usually at night uh, in in this big old house. So you you do have this this very traditional gothic um, structure uh, mm. within which. Uh, Conan Doyle places a, a, a semi-science fiction sort of story. It, in many ways, it, it, it's 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 interesting to to think whether Conan Doyle intended this as a Sherlock Holmes story mm. at all, or even if this this was one of the ideas that's been drifting about in the back of his head and might have been a story idea he's had for a while because it it feels very reminiscent in many ways of of, of stories of the eighteen nineties. Yeah. Uh, or oh, 1880s, 1890s, where there was a lot of uh, a lot of these uh, science fiction, horror, occult mashups going on. Um, I'm thinking, of course, of, of things like um, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Strange Case of, of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. H.G. Um, Wells is The Island of Doctor Morrow. Um, F. Marion Crawford's The Witch of Prague. All these sorts of, of stories were, were were very much in the air. So it's it, it it actually can't be nailed down mm. um and and of course is it also is it really a detective story mm. um at points it feels as if holmes has been pushed into a different story yeah and if we think about this as a science fiction story it does that thing of uh, taking a uh, scientific 
topic that was uh, that had a lot of currency and then expanding on it in 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 some ways and uh, the whole story draws on rejuvenation therapies and the idea that transplantation of animal tissue to humans would would uh, help people overcome old age and uh, senility and a lot of it had its uh, origins with the early work on hormones in the second half of the 19th century by um, scientists like uh, Brown Sicard uh, in France but there was also a scientist called Serge Voronoff um, a French surgeon who was originally from Russia who uh, did many experiments in the 1920s, uh, started by transplanting thyroid glands from chimpanzees to treat humans with thyroid deficiencies. Uh, but in the 1920s and 30s, he came to be transplanting uh, monkey glands and um, uh, to humans for therapeutic purposes. Um, and as much as he, he, he himself, Voronov actually said himself that this wasn't a kind of aphrodisiac, it very, got, very much got associated with being uh, a therapy for uh, failing virility. And he wasn't some sort of crank. I mean, he, by 1923, 700 of the world's leading surgeons had uh, convened at the International Congress of Surgeons in London and were applauding uh, Voronov for his work in the rejuvenation of old men. But in addition to Voronov, there was another person who's important in this story called um, Eugene Steinach, who was a Viennese uh, physiologist who did a lot of work into uh, estrogen and testosterone. And he too performed transplants. And in fact, Richard Brown, in a very good article on this topic in Canadian Homes, uh, noted that uh, in Vienna, Steinach's assistant was called Dr. Robert Leichenstein, uh, from which we might well get Lowenstein of Prague in this story. Um, and uh, one of uh, Steinach's patients was actually uh, W.B. Yates, who uh, had an, uh, apparently a second puberty in April 1934 after he'd been Steinacked. Um, but others were less, uh, less fortunate. There's a, a case in the newspapers in 1921 of a chap called Mr. Alfred Wilson, uh, a 72-year-old who had apparently regained his youth after uh, being Steinacked in, uh, in Vienna for the sum of £700, which was equivalent to about £40,000 today. Um, and apparently, uh, having gone through this miraculous treatment, uh, his hair had begun to grow back on his head. He was contemplating marriage to his young nurse, I bet he was. Um, there's photographs of him in the newspapers, sort of doing stretches and sawing pieces of wood in half. And uh, as, if, as if that's the sign of reality. And then he, uh, he was so convinced that the treatment was, uh, uh, was successful that he decided to hire an enormous lecture venue uh, to give uh, a talk on this miracle cure. And, you know, what perfect lecture venue could there be for somebody who's had uh, monkey testicle transplants but the Albert Hall? Um, and so uh, he, he booked the Albert Hall for this lecture. But unfortunately, the day before, his housekeeper found him dead. Um, and so when the when the everybody turned up at the Albert Hall, there was they were greeted by a notice on the door that said, uh, "In consequence of the sudden death of Mr. Alfred Wilson, the lecture will not take place." Um, but but it's amazing this 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 uh, all of this stuff uh, really current at the time. In fact, there are two news stories in October 1922, which would be right at the time that Conan Doyle was starting to um, put pen to paper on the Creeping Man that are, are very relevant. The first was that Voronov was actually lecturing in London in, in October 1922. Um, the second is that there was a story that came out of the Paris newspapers and was widely circulated, including in the British newspapers, 
uh, about a plan for a vast breeding farm of monkeys in West Africa, of all places, where, of course, Conan Doyle had, had visited in his youth. So, you know, a couple of reasons why these stories might well have, have um, piqued his interest. And, and if you look at the popular response to people like Voronov, um, there's a mixture of both acclaim and ridicule. Uh, and it seeps into the popular culture. So, uh, you know, in 1920s, Harry's Bar in Paris launched a new cocktail called the Monkey Gland, which um, <laughs> contained gin, orange juice, grenadine and absinthe, <laughs> which is either going to cure your virility or kill it for good. Um, there's then a musical comedy called The Elixir based on, on this theory. There was a, one of those great 1920s uh, movie serials called The Screaming Shadow, uh, which ran for 15 episodes, and the promotion described it as uh, st- a story that is novel and up-to-date in its conception, being founded on the monkey gland theory and the possibility of eternal youth. Um, and then, you know, the, Conan Doyle's not the only author who's drawing on this as well. There's actually a, a wonderful uh, novel by Dorothy L. Sayers, herself a Sherlockian, uh, who uh, wrote the wonderful Lord Peter Whimsey novel, uh, The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, which... Um, uh, skip 30 seconds if you don't want to know what happens. Um, the murderer is Dr. Penbethy, who actually kills for money so that he can fund his new clinic, which uh, is going to make everybody good by glands. Um, and they say that, uh, so very wonderful. This is one character says of Dr. Penbethy, so very wonderful about glands, isn't it? Dr. Voronoff, you know, and all those marvellous old sheep. Such a hope for us all. Yes, it, it's interesting that you should mention there this uh, musical, The Elixir, um, mm-hmm. because basically what, what is happening with this, this monkey gland idea moving into literature, um, it, it, it is, again, just an updating of an old idea. I mean, this goes back mm-hmm. to antiquity and the idea of the elixir of youth. Um, and again, it was a strong theme um, in, in, the, the, in, in a lot of writings of the Fandasiek. Uh, a lot of the stories I've I've, I've already mentioned uh, go into this, um, like Marion Crawford's *The Witch of Prague*. Um, the, the central side of of, of that is is um, around the the misuse of, of of hypnotism and a form of of elixir, uh, in which the, uh, the, the 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 wicked magician Keok Arabian <laughs> is attempting to keep an old man alive by distilling the essence of youth from from a young victim, Israel Kafka, um, and and his associate, the witch Onona, is using her hypnotism to uh, trick Kafka in, into believing that he's just getting this gentle sleep. And each time he gets experimented upon, he's losing a month of his life, which is going into the body of the old man. Mm. So it's a similar idea, but given that this this magic uh, magic twist. Or as a, another side of it, you could say Dracula. Yeah. What is Dracula about? It it is about draining draining youth. It is about prolonging life, prolonging youth. Uh, very pointedly, Dracula starts the novel as as a, a grey haired, grey moustached old man, um, and as he takes blood from his victims, he becomes younger and younger throughout mm. the novel. So it's again a, a magical, occult version of of, of the same story. But of course, there's also another element in Dracula, which has the the, the, the up-to-date scientific element, um, where Van Helsing is using experimental methods of, of blood transfusion. Mm. 
um, to try and keep the victims alive. Um, and this, this, this does seem to work. Um, whereas in reality, of course, there, there's no mention of blood types and so on or, or mm. donor rejection. Um, so the, all of that idea is 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 um, is, is ignored in Dracula, um, and I, I think I'm right in 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 saying that there is is a surgeon who 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 said with the the monkey glands that, that there would have been a lot of cases of, of of rejection there if this was real science. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the really peculiar things about um, the, the creeping man is that you would kind of expect it to be a story about an old man who's hoodwinked into a false remedy. Or, or in fact, it might be it might be the placebo effect, or it's psychosomatic. Mm-hmm. But actually, it does seem to work. It's just got these horrible side effects. And um, you have the uh, uh, Bennett says at one point, um, Presbury was has never been in better health. In fact, he is stronger than I have known him for years. And and in fact, Holmes writes to uh, Lowenstein of Prague at the end to say. You know, he holds him criminally responsible for what is going on, which you, which you kind of, you know, it might be because he just thinks he's he's selling sham remedies, but that's not what comes across in this case. This is the the odd thing about this um, sort of almost magical um, uh, treatment that he's getting is that it it does seem to genuinely have some kind of impact. I think that's the key. Where you, you've just mentioned the word magical, there—that that's that's what's actually going on. This is why, really, this this story is more of an occult, magical horror story than a science fiction story per se, because this 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 crazy idea does work, mm. as you say, with these these rather unfortunate side effects. <laughs> um, and of course, in the in the, the 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 classic horror story versions like Dracula, yes, it does work because you are in the realms of of, of magic and the occult. Mm. So what you're saying is this is monkey magic. <laughs> Essentially, yes. <laughs> Irrepressible. Irrepressible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and speaking of matters magical and occult, um, the, 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 there's another pointer in this story to say this is more the direction Conan Doyle's actually thinking um, in that the, 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 the serum itself, the gland serum, originates from Prague mm. um, and with this mysterious figure, Lowenstein, which the very name connects him essentially with the, with the Jewish ghetto of Prague, the Jewish quarter where the golem was created um, mm. in, in Prague legend. Um, and, and Prague is, is, is the city of, of alchemists. And, and it's always got this, this, this name of magical Prague, which the, the Italian writer Ripolino Mm. talks about very uh, very enthusiastically um and and this comes particularly from the the, the late 16th century early 17th century in the, the the time of the emperor rudolf ii who was absolutely fascinated by the the occult uh, and to the extent that he neglected his his imperial duties and so on and eventually had to be um dethroned mm. um but he invited many of the, the the magicians and occultists of europe into prague the figures like john d and edward kelly um, and had the streets of, of, of alchemists. Um, and again, in this this sense, it is interesting that alchemy is chosen because alchemy is is often considered merely as this foolish attempt to transmute base metals into gold. Mm. But there's far more involved. It involves the transmutation of the the alchemist's soul, and is another attempt to to get towards the elixir of youth or the elixir of of eternal life. So th- this all ties together in the in this theme of the, of the creeping man, and is is no doubt why uh, Conan Doyle chose to 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 place the, the the kind of the real villain of the piece in Prague. Mm. 
And thinking about um, Professor Presbury as the sort of central figure in this, um, it's worth thinking a bit about uh, who might have inspired that character. And W.W. Uh, w. Robson, in the Oxford Sherlock Holmes edition of the casebook, made the excellent observation that uh, the character and the circumstances of Professor Presbury uh, may well draw on the life of Professor William Rutherford, who was uh, another professor of physiology at Edinburgh this time, who taught uh, Conan Doyle. Um, and Conan Doyle, of course, cited Rutherford as one of the inspirations for Professor Challenger. Uh, he wrote in Memories and Adventures, uh, most vividly of all, there stands out in my memory the squat figure of Professor Rutherford with his Assyrian beard, his prodigious voice, his enormous chest, and his singular manner. He fascinated and awed us. I have endeavoured to reproduce some of his peculiarities in the fictitious character of Professor Challenger. And if you think about the description of uh, Presbury himself, who's a portly, large-featured man, grave, tall, frock-coated, uh, with the dignity of bearing which a lecturer needs. I mean, this could also be another version of Rutherford. And uh, Robson notes that um, there are another uh, couple of connections here. One is that uh, Rutherford uh, was actually apprenticed to and eventually took over from Professor John Hughes Bennett at, uh, uh, at Edinburgh. So that's possibly where we get the name Bennett from. And there was, in fact, a painful public scandal in Rutherford's life, a bit like the one that... Uh, apparently circulated around the university uh, when uh, Professor Presbury was up to his various antics. Um, and for Rutherford, it came in December 1886. He had an altercation with his senior assistant where he seems to have been out of line and uh, had an argument with uh, Herbert H. Ashdown, um, during which Ashdown felt that his moral character was being impugned. And Rutherford then repeated these claims to other academics and even to his class, and uh, the, the issue became a, a, a very bitter one. Ashdown resigned because the university wasn't able to, uh, to investigate and support him. And eventually it transpired that actually Ashdown's was the third or fourth resignation uh, that had unexpectedly occurred in the same department. So there was a sort of pattern of bullying or, or, or unprofessional behavior from Rutherford. Rutherford actually eventually issued this very um, forthright and full apology uh, one that you wouldn't see from politicians today, mm -hmm. um, where he was absolutely unreserved in saying, I really shouldn't have done this, and I'm desperately sorry, and I'm you know, very sad that you, you resigned. Um, and it clearly played on him because he applied for six months' leave, and at the end of that applied for another six months uh, as well. And, uh, and it was quite the topic of conversation in the, in the Edinburgh press throughout the year. And for all this took place in Edinburgh after Conan Doyle had left the university, Robson points out that at the time of writing The Creeping Man, Conan Doyle was in the early stages of pulling together his memoirs and he was looking back over his university days and his early life in Edinburgh. And it may well have been through that that some of these details came to his attention and became part of the framework of The Creeping Man. And the other thing that, that connects Rutherford, I don't think Robson points this out, but the other thing that connects Rutherford to this story is that um, uh, Rutherford was a noted vivisectionist and got into a lot of trouble with this. So there were some public investigations. Um, and in Memories and Adventures, Conan Doyle recalls, Rutherford was, I fear, a rather ruthless vivisector. And though I have always recognised that a minimum of painless vivisection is necessary and far more justifiable than the eating of meat as a food, which is an interesting point, um, I'm glad that the law was made more stringent so as to restrain such men as he. Ach, these German frags, he would exclaim in his curious accent 
as he tore some poor amphibian <laughs> to pieces. Quite remarkable. So yeah, the, and the, there was um, quite a, a level of, of public distaste um, at the idea of vivisection um, and 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 its purpose uh, mm. within uh, scientific investigation. Um, I mean, there, there are incidents um, fifty years apart of, of, of two different French scientists uh, who came to Britain to to actually give public demonstrations in vivisection. Um, the first one in 1824, the French physiologist uh, François Majondi, and then in 1874, um, another French physiologist, Eugène Manan, hmm. um, both of whom were essentially run out of town um, <laughs> for their, their level of over-enthusiasm. Um, and, and there was also a, a, a certain subgenre of, of, of literature, anti-vivisection literature, um, I mean, one of the novels, uh, later novels of Wilkie Collins, Heart and Science, um, oh. is very strong on this theme with, mm. with a very villainous uh, vivisectionist, uh, Dr. Ben Julia. Really, really unpleasant piece of work. Um, but the most famous uh, book to look at this this whole issue really is, is H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Morrow, mm. published yeah. in 1896, uh, in which... Morrow, it, it has a, an island in the Pacific, which is essentially where the um, the Galapagos Islands are situated, uh, where he he is carrying out these these rather pointless mm. vivisection experiments, where he, he's trying to physically turn animals into human beings uh, using surgery. Uh, there's there's absolutely no reason for him to do this other than, than personal satisfaction. Um, and it, it's it's making a point about you know almost research gone mad as yeah. well as the scientists carrying out the research and Morrow when he's he's trying to explain his his reasonings to the uh, the book's narrator says you see I went on with this research just the way it led me that is the only way I ever heard of research going I asked a question devised some method of getting an answer and got a fresh question. Was this possible or that possible? You cannot imagine what this means to an investigator. What an intellectual passion grows upon him. You cannot imagine the strange colorless delight of these intellectual desires. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just utter, utter pointlessness of, of, of what he's doing uh, it, it is, is, is the point being made. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways you can compare this to another uh, one of the great... Um, proto-science fiction novels of the time, um, Jekyll and Hyde, mm. where the experiment that, that Jekyll's carrying on, where he's he trying to separate the good from the bad, is utterly pointless because he separates out the good, the good does good, but then the Hyde comes in and smashes up what the good has done. It, it's, it's utterly pointless, and it is this, this questioning of, of science uh, the, the, within a cultural context that's going on here. And there is an element of this in The Creeping Man, well, oh, yes, Presbury's doing it for a particular reason, in a sense, because he's become engaged to this young woman. But it, it is pointless and it, 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 it won't last. Yeah. Um, and again, perhaps Joy was thinking of another short story, which we mentioned in, in episode 23, the Kineplatz experiment, mm. uh, Dr. Heidegger's experiment by Nathaniel Hawthorne, where a group of foolish old people drink the elixir of youth. Um, they become young for a time, behave foolishly. And then old age creeps up on them again pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think the pointlessness of 
this is is a really important point when we connect this back to the spiritualist aspect as well. If you think about what Holmes says at the end of this story, he says, there is danger there, a very real danger to humanity. Consider, Watson, that the material, the sensual, the worldly would all prolong their worthless lives. The spiritual would not avoid the call to something higher. It would be the survival of the least fit. What sort of cesspool may not our poor world uh, become? And in a way, Holmes is less concerned with the treatment and more with the endeavour, this actual desire of these people to try to extend their lives. Uh, I mean, he says later, you know, uh, when one tries to rise above nature, one is liable to fall below it. The highest type of man may revert to the animal if he leaves the straight road of destiny. And this is Holmes the spiritual, if not the spiritualist, because what he's talking about is that the natural order of things is that we we die and that the the innate desire to cheat death is completely pointless um and it, it it's almost an insult to the spiritualist world view that somebody should seek to extend their life beyond its natural term and and i think douglas kerr picks this up really well in his article and it was it was uh, uh reissued within that same canadian homes um issue i I mentioned earlier, where um, he says, you know, this is the closest that we actually get to spiritualism appearing in uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories. And uh, again, the fact that this may have been the final short story that um, Conan Doyle was intending to write with Sherlock Holmes, it becomes quite an important final moment. It's It's a piece of philosophizing that seems quite out of character. So seeing it at the end of this story, which could indeed be the final one of the of the uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, it, it 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 could be very very important in that respect. And you've got to remember, this is the closest bit that we that, that the uh, the the veil between the spiritualist work and the and the Sherlock Holmes story starts to, you know, it becomes transparent for a brief poem, brief moment of time. I think. Yeah, there's there's a real specificity about it when you compare it to to Holmes's earlier philosophizing in the naval treaty on the rose mm. or in the cardboard box about the the, the the struggle of life and what's it all about this is this is more specific yeah much um, more but the, the thing that strikes me in particular with the, the this whole philosophizing at the end of the, the creeping man is is that wonderful subversion of of, of herbert spencer's <laughs> idea of the survival of the fittest oh yes it, it's 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 just almost throwaway in this it's just brilliantly put in yeah it's it's lyrical isn't it it's wonderful mm. that moment and um and, and that whole point you know what sort of cesspool may not our world become gosh it's really powerful mm. stuff actually mm. um yeah I, I i think that's and that's one of the things that we also worth saying that you know for all people um often criticize this story or indeed the case book more generally there are always things within these stories to enjoy mm. Uh, you get you gave one of my favourite bits from this, which is of course the famous telegram at the beginning. Mm. Um, actually, I was going to say um, <laughs> there's a quite good moment at the end of the Granada adaptation of <laughs> of uh, the Creeping Man, where uh, Holmes is giving that exact same speech, the philosophising mm. speech at the end, and uh, <laughs> in front of Lestrade and Watson. And Lestrade turns around and says, "Well, when you quite finished." <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting talking about um, all these these matters spiritual, um, because as as 
Holmes points out, this story is anything but spiritual. And, and the whole vivisection movement in some ways was, was driven by that particular branch of medical science known as physiology. Mm. Um, and of course, Presbury is is a f- physiologist, uh, as, as was Rutherford, um, as are people like Morrow. And of of course, um, the whole reasoning behind this story is is lies with um, Professor Presbury's physical desire, mm. his his desire to 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 regain. Uh, and again, we we can only presume this regain um, a flagging virility, mm. uh, and and this is why he's he's you know undergoing this this uh, monkey gland therapy. Yeah, and and this isn't the first time that Conan Doyle has looked at this sort of um, uh, idea of this match between the older professor and the younger uh, woman. In fact, even between the older physiologist and the younger woman, because there's a much earlier story called uh, A Physiologist's Wife, which sort of plays on some of the similar kind of concerns that Conan Doyle has, and we've mentioned before in the podcast about materialist science. It comes comes around time and time again in his in his writing. So in A Physiologist's Wife, the main character is Professor Ainsley Gray, and he's the ultimate materialist science. He doesn't, um, uh, he doesn't believe in love. He can only conceive of it as a sort of chemical reaction. Then he meets a beautiful widow and falls head over heels in love, and of course that doesn't work out, and the, the story ends with him dying of a broken heart. And it's a beautiful piece. It's a wonderful um, short story. The thing that's interesting about that and The Creeping Man is that you've got a similar kind of theme going on here with this aged uh, uh, physiologist um, but in the case of a physiologist's wife it's very much about romantic love and in uh, uh, The Creeping Man the the undertone is entirely sexual this this is much more about a, a sort of sexual infatu- infatuation with a, uh, uh, a much younger woman and in in part it's a sort of marking of the passage of time since the early home so- stories of the 1890s through to The Creeping Man the post-war era where um, as Owen Dudley Edwards has pointed out, there is a much greater um, focus in the casebook on some of those fundamental human problems, uh, and particularly on sort of transgressive sexual behaviour. I mean, in the casebook, we've got um, we've got the illustrious client with Baron Gruner. We've got um, in retired Cullerman, you've got the the uh, adultery taking place. You've got the events of Thor Bridge. These are stories that deal with. Uh, um, sexual desire much more explicitly than you see anywhere else in the Sherlock Holmes stories. And it might be significant in this story that uh, it's not the Morphy family who object to um, the match between Professor with Professor Presbury. It's actually Professor Presbury's family who object to, um, to his engagement with Miss Morphy. Um, and this sort of sense in which he might be behaving rather inappropriately and it uh, might be unsuitable for a, for a man his age. Yeah, and there, there might also be a, a question, perhaps lurking behind this, of 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 of, of Presbury's daughter and 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 Bennett himself as well, being worried by the prospect of of Presbury having another child, particularly if it's a son. Uh, Bennett seems to have set himself up quite nicely to be the professor's successor, um, and 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 move into his place. Um, probably both professionally and economically, and the presence of, of another child would, would upset plans of that kind quite <laughs> that's seriously. A, that's a good point, yeah. But, but having said that, their, their primary concern does seem to be about this, this inappropriate, strange behavior, these, these, these 
character changes that the that the professor's going through and and that there might be the possibility of of, of scandal lurking mm. around the corner and this this is presumably why um why bennett has has, has brought in uh, Holmes in the first place because Holmes is is renowned for his discretion and being able to get things done and and perhaps you know it's interesting to to speculate uh, again about about Conan Doyle's thoughts on his own father um and and his behavior his drunken behavior um mm. an embarrassment frequent embarrassment to the family in 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 Edinburgh which which definitely came out in 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 a lot of his earlier stories uh i mean the, the the story we covered in episode one, the doings of Raffles Hall, uh, where you've you've got the um, the old McIntyre character, mm. who gradually becomes more and more of a, a, a slave to drink, um, and in the end breaks into Raffles Hall's uh, laboratory, um, and and is seen doing this, and it's described uh, in this way: an electric lamp burned in the laboratory. And the silver squares of the three large windows stood out clear and bright in the darkness. The centre one had been thrown open, and even as he gazed, Robert saw a dark, monkey-like figure mm. spring up onto the sill and vanish into the room beyond. And this is in 1891. Um, in the same year, uh, he wrote another short story uh, called A Sordid Affair, mm. um, which is a, a little domestic vignette about a, an artist with a serious drink problem um, and is quite clearly based on Conan Doyle's own family experience. Mm. Um, and the artist John Raby at one point is found in the street, essentially gibbering on all fours and, and is compared again to, to an ape. Mm. Um, so the, this kind of worry about, uh, about the, the behavior of the family patriarch is, is, is an ongoing concern throughout his, throughout his fiction. And th- th- there is, I, I think very real reason to believe that this also informs Presbury. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that this also plays very much directly into that Victorian fear of the um, regression, and that's exactly what you see is happening with with Presbury. This man who is can be a genius in his lectures, but every nine mm. days he's going to become this <laughs> rabid lunatic. And and presumably this this is exactly why um, Doyle has chosen the monkey. As 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 the the kind of alter ego of the professor, um, rather than the, as I said earlier, uh, rather than the, than the more traditional werewolf mm. idea, where the, the wolf is is the frighteningly uh, virile yeah. creature of 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 folklore, and it's interesting that that at one point in the story, Holmes pointedly dismisses cycles of the moon. Yes, he as does. playing a part in this. Yeah. Um, so it's a deliberate move away from the classic werewolf idea um, and, and the, the, the easiest way to show how Presbury is, is moving back into the animal world is, is by showing him regressing into, into a more ape-like form. Mm. Um, it, it's interesting in this way to compare it to um, Rudyard Kipling's 18, 1891 story, uh, The Mark of the Beast, uh, where uh, an, an Englishman who insults the Hindu monkey god Hanuman by stubbing out his cigar on, on the forehead of his statue is then cursed by, by a, a temple leper mm. to regress to animal form himself. But this is again, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 
a wolf, um, which presumably because the temple god is a monkey, that the monkey is there seen as a higher being than the yeah. wolf. So the man regresses into a wolf. But again, the ideas are there. Yeah, and that, that's a good point about the uh, about the phases of the moon as well, because that's an that's an aspect of this story where Conan sort of has his cake and eat it, mm. in that he's quite prepared to to play on the gothic tropes and then completely undermine them at the same time. Mm. <laughs> so you have the phases of the moon, but it isn't actually the phases of the moon. Um, you've got that moment where Presbury clambers up the wall, which is straight out of Dracula. Oh, absolutely! If you look at the way Conan Doyle describes. Presbury's antics in this way. With his dressing gown flapping on each side of him, he looked like some huge bat glued against the side of his own house, mm. a great square dark patch upon the moonlit wall. And you look at a particular passage from Dracula where the Count climbs down the wall of his castle. I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and begin to crawl down the castle wall over that dreadful abyss, face down, with his cloak spreading out around him like great wings. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very similar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, the, the problem I find with this, with the creeping man in particular, is the fact that we've had Presbury described earlier as a portly figure. Yes. <laughs> uh, so having him creeping about on the ivy outside his house... Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't quite wash. <laughs> and it's 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 notable in the Granada series that that um, they cast Charles Kay, an actor who is considerably smaller than the character is described in in the story. Yeah, and very sprightly if you believe his acting in that tree at the end. No, <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole idea of, of of regressing back to the monkey state also fits in with, 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 with ideas which really began to surface uh, after, after Darwin and, and the evolutionary theories, but were really informing the culture in, in the 1890s, again in particular, uh, with, with the idea of, of, of decadence and, and degeneration. Mm. Um, the fact that Western culture was sliding backwards. Um, and there's a, a particularly striking book was written at the time by the journalist Max Nordau, um, simply entitled Degeneration, where he, he sees modern art as, 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 as an aberration, partly because he, he, he doesn't understand it. Mm. Um, but it just instinctively horrifies him as well. So he, he around this builds... Uh, a whole theory about um, about the, the, the decadence of, of Western civilization and, and it's going to go the way of the Roman Empire if we're not careful, uh, or even worse. Um, and, and as I say, these ideas were, were, were hugely in vogue in, in the, the era of the fin de siècle. But it's interesting that, that, that The Creeping Man is, is written in 1923, at the, the time when the Nazis were starting their inexorable rise in Germany and they, they were tapping into a lot of these ideas about racial degeneration and yeah. the artist, artistic degeneration um, played into all this and, and that um, unless something was done about it, the Western civilization was doomed um, and, and how they perverted all these ideas. Yeah. And Nordau actually says something about um, the collapse of science as well, that, that in Western society, science will collapse into magic. And that one of the pieces of evidence of that is the, is the interest in spiritualism as well. Mm. And while we're on the topic of degeneration, I think one of the things that's less pleasing about uh, The Creeping Man is that the characters of Holmes and Watson in this story feel to me quite 
uh, stereotypical. They feel almost like uh, Conan Doyle has... Conan Doyle's not living the characters in the same way he was in the 1890s when he was writing these at a pace and and he's living with them in his head all the time. And also he's not fed up with them in the 1890s. <laughs> but by the time you get here, you've got quite a different view of Holmes and Watson. I mean, the story starts with... Uh, this quite meek Watson describing himself as being just one of Holmes' habits and um, is as much use as the bedstead um, <laughs> and that he, he recognises that he irritates Holmes with a certain methodical slow, slowness in my mentality, um, which, you know, is not new. Um, in Hound of the Baskervilles, Holmes says, you know, it may be that you are not yourself luminous, but you are a conductor of light. <laughs> it's much the same point, but but actually in this... You know, Watson readily accepts, uh, such was my humble role in our alliance. He's very kind of passive and um, simple in this one. And, of course, his great comic moment is to suggest that um, Professor Presbury is suffering from lumbago. Um, And then, but in terms of Holmes, you've got Holmes also is this strange kind of withdrawn character, man of fixed habits. He's He's even quite smug at one point. He says, you know, the same old Watson, you never learn that the gravest issues may depend upon the smallest things. You know, he's quite patronizing and, you know, he can be that at the best of times. But but in this, it feels like Conan Doyle uh, is so distant from the characters that these are almost um, caricatures. And it might be actually that ties into that whole business of um, watching the stole pictures, you know, that actually... You know, particularly on the case of Watson, uh, Hubert Willis, who played Watson for most of those movies, you know, is is almost completely forgettable in the role of Watson. They very much sideline him to just being the asking the dumb questions. Um, so, so there's a sense in which these are not quite the same characters. You also get a sense that they're in a different phase of their life, and that's really telegraphed very early on, where Watson says this is one of the last cases that Holmes. Um, uh, Holmes had in practice and there's this quite nice detail that you get in the case book that that at this time Holmes has got other people around him who are working for him so in this story we are introduced to Mercer who he says Mercer is since your time said Holmes he's my general utility man who looks up routine business and then in the illustrious client you have Shinwell Johnson who is this sort of rod, rather dodgy character at the lower echelons of society and then in contrast to him, you've got Langdale Pike, who's at the upper echelons of society. He sits in this St. James Club as the uh, receiving station as well as the transmitter for all the gossip of the metropolis. So, um, you know, you have this idea that Holmes has sort of withdrawn to his Baker Street premises and uh, and has other people doing, doing this detection work mm-hmm. for him. And it struck me, thinking about the timing of this story, that... that um, Conan Doyle, at this point, had just taken out a five-year lease on a property called 15 Buckingham Palace Mansions in Victoria. It's just between Victoria Station and Buckingham Palace itself. And, um, you know, he had a young family that was at at Windlesham, but actually he was working more and more out of London. And it's quite possible that Creeping Man is the first story he wrote in that that venue. And there he lived pretty much on his own, except for a housekeeper. And he, he once wrote to... Gene Leckie, his wife, saying, you know, I've burnt the coffee. <laughs> um, and he, he it reminded him of his very early days in, in Southsea. But but you get, you know, get the sense that Holmes at this time might be a bit like Conan Doyle is, that he actually is a, a guy living pretty much on his own, in his own place in central London. And he has a network of people around him who are doing bits and pieces of work for him. 
Oh, it's, it's interesting you, you talk there as well about a particular aspect of the, the story being telegraphed. And there are, there are two cases of, of early telegraphing in, in The Creeping Man. And the other one is where Watson makes an early mention of the Copper Beaches. Oh, yes. And essentially, he's he's almost by that telling the reader what he's going to be doing at the end. <laughs> I.e. Presbury is savaged by a dog. Mm-hmm. And Sherlock Holmes has a doctor on hand to patch him up afterwards. Yeah. Um, and again, perhaps that's Conan Doyle making a, a, a sly little reference to the fact that these are very formulaic stories. I've done all yeah. this before. Yeah, and I, I did. I did. It did strike me this time round how much it felt a bit like the Speckled Band to some extent. I mean, in that the end of this story is this is is a stakeout, <laughs> essentially. Mm. You've got. Uh, uh, you've got them waiting on the outside for for the for the inevitable horror to to unfold, mm. um, and you also have other things like the uh, the confrontation with the um, the villainous professor, mm. whether it's Moriarty or it's Leslie Armstrong in the missing three quarter, or, mm. or indeed it's it's uh, Doctor Roylott in the Speckled Band. But it's not quite the same, is it? Not, it doesn't feel quite the same. It feels like it's all self referential in that mm. sense. And you've also got the. It, 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 this again comes back to the the sort of horror gothic element. In in the in in one sense, the speckled band is a is a haunted house story, <laughs> and the creeping man is a werewolf story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for the creeping man. Um, if you want to find the show notes, you can find them at the website doingsofdoyle.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating or review, or consider sponsoring us on Patreon. Um, you can find the links in the show notes. And Paul, what are we looking at next time? Next time, we're going on an undersea adventure with the Maricot Deep. The Maricot Deep. Excellent. So we will see you next month. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Do monkey glands do anything for podcasting? I doubt it. I don't I don't think they do much for anything, to be quite honest. <laughs>